from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here. It's the conversation in which we explore everything related to work and the rest of your life. Your family, your community, our society, our broken society, so much in need of healing from all of us, and your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. How do you create harmony among those different, often disparate and conflicted parts of life? Well, what we do on this show every week is to try to bring you a new perspective that helps you to do that. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program. Started both of those back in 1991. And I run a management consulting, coaching, and training company. It's called Total Leadership. You can find out more about what we do, the services we provide, how we help people and organizations create harmony and improve performance in all parts of life. Lots of free resources, videos, all kinds of cool stuff at totalleadership.org. And about our show, you can find new episodes of it premiering Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM 132. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at SXM Business as well as at Stu Friedman. And then you can find free podcast versions at totalleadership.org. I'm really excited about our conversation today because it's, uh, it's with someone who has got a unique position to talk about so much of what's on the minds of working parents today. And she's written a great book about how really to help parents and schools and our society raise the new generation of girls, especially schools are struggling to, to figure out how classes are going to look this fall in the midst of the pandemic. We're recording in the first week of August, 2020. And my guest today, she's got this great new book that offers some really practical suggestions based on her own experience and on, on social science research on what parents can do to encourage children, again, particularly girls, in what's surely going to be a challenging learning environment, not just this year, but in the years to come. So it's, it's really my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Marissa Porges to today's program. Her book is called What Girls Need. How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. Marissa, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you for having me, Stu. Great to be here. It's great to have you here. So let me just tell folks a little bit more about your remarkable background before we get into the conversation. Dr. Marissa Porges is known for her work on leadership, education, and, wait for it, national security. Yes, she's currently the eighth head of school at the Baldwin School a 130-year-old all-girls school just outside of Philadelphia, almost a stone's throw from my window right here in suburban Philadelphia. It's renowned for academic excellence and has been for generations and for preparing girls to be leaders and change makers. But it's, uh, it's probably a lot different than what you might think of if you think of the stereotypic uh, mainline uh, society uh, girls school and we're gonna we're gonna find out what a modern Baldwin looks like in talking to Dr. Porges but let me just say a little bit more about her background before joining Baldwin in 2016 she served in the Obama White House was a visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and at the Council on Foreign Relations where her research focused on 
worldwide terrorism efforts. I'm sure this helped prepare her very well for her role as head of school at Baldwin. What? Okay, we're going to find out about the connection there shortly. Uh, she's also uh, has the distinction of having served in the U.S. Navy as one of the eight female aviators in an air wing of about 200 people. She's a fighter pilot. Oh, my gosh. She graduated from Harvard in 2000 and earned her doctorate at King's College London in 2014. Marissa, what a remarkable background. How the heck, please tell me, did you get from counterterrorism and flying fighter jets to being the head of school at the all-girls Baldwin School outside of Philadelphia? Well, I do say that it has been um, a bit of a choose-your-own-adventure for my career, that's for sure. I had the good fortune of uh, following my, my dreams as I was a kid, flying off carriers and then serving in the White House, traveling the world, studying counterterrorism, you know, meeting with the Al-Qaeda terrorists in Yemen and Taliban in Afghanistan. And then one day I got a call out of the blue, actually. I was uh, working in the White House, and I can vividly remember getting that call. I think we all figure when uh, we get some calls, it's going to be a solicitation of some sort. And this one was seeing if I'd be interested in returning to my alma mater. So actually I went to Baldwin and I had the good fortune of, of having um, that education set me on my path. And so I had the opportunity to come back and serve as um, the, the head of school, leading a community that uh, give, had given me a lot. So it was a, mm -hmm. a great opportunity to take a little bit out of left field. I think we all agreed both then and now, but it's been uh, really rewarding to come back and be part of the community again. What, what did you learn uh, serving to, you know, subdue counterterrorism or subdue terrorism in the world and keep America safe seriously now that that has helped prepare you for your role as head of school at Baldwin? Yeah, I think, uh, gosh, so much. I think we can take all of our, you know, you think of life experiences and how important they are when we're thinking about raising the next generation in education. And I think so much of it comes to play in really unique ways. For me, it was twofold. One, my military experience leading you know, being on the front lines, being serving with sailors and soldiers um, in Afghanistan and on a carrier and, you know, really trying to understand, you know, how you support other people and how to be an empathetic leader. I think that was a tremendous part of leading any organization and so important when you're thinking about teachers in particular, right, and how we support them in educating our girls. Um, and then I think also it was the ability and sort of the practice I had in seeing other perspectives. Right. One story that comes to mind and is actually in, in the book that I just came out this week is um, when I was sitting and having breakfast with a, an Al Qaeda recruiter in Yemen and we started talking about religion and he pressed me on my religion. And I'm I'm Jewish, which is not something you're supposed to admit to a former um, Al Qaeda terrorist, most certainly not over tea in Yemen. Um, but in the course of the conversation and sharing our stories about family and religion and, and telling him this, my translator kicked me under the table. But before you knew it, he was commiserating what with what it felt like to be somewhat different. And it turns out he had himself had switched religions along the way and this whole crazy story. But six, the point is, six, six religions. Is that what you said? Oh, no, no. He had switched to becoming switched. the Baha'i. Switched. Ah, okay. So he himself, upon leaving, he had left uh, when he, you know, he had been with Osama bin Laden and in, uh, in Afghanistan and then left. And it's a whole crazy story. But the point, the, the real crux of it was we found some common ground, mm -hmm. right? And I think in the practice of finding common ground in all these crazy places, when I was studying counterterrorism, when I was working in the White House, when I was serving in the military, 
I think so much of leading is finding common ground, but particularly in schools when we need to teach our kids, the next generation, about what it takes to find common ground. And I think, again, that's just one thing that I, I know I bring to my, my job now. So when, you're, when your translator kicked you under the table, what were they trying to stop you from doing that you've found ultimately, especially in retrospect, to be useful in connecting with this person who you had to establish some kind of dialogue with for whatever it was you were trying to do there? What, yeah, what, sharing what too you... much personal information, right? In particular, as a, a single female, um, as, a, as a Jew in a, a Muslim country where um, women, you know, there's a gender dynamic, there's a religious element, there's a security element. It was actually, um, this was uh, at the height of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian, Arabian Peninsula doing attacks in Sana'a in the capital of Yemen. And so throughout my interviews, throughout my travels, um, whether it was in Yemen or Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan or places I would be, there was always a little bit of, of the, the boundary lines of what personal information sure. I would share. And so this was the moment where I, I truly overshared and, um, and there was concern of the, the person, you know, the translator I was with that, he, that this was going to be a problem, but it, it turns out in this instance to be okay. But, um, you know, I, I obviously am a, somewhat, you know, concerned occasionally about what information I share. Yeah. Well, I mean, we all are, right? And I mm -hmm. think this is part of what you're trying to teach in What Girls Need about, you know, what it means to be both strong and vulnerable, what it means to be genuine and to, to, to be seen as credible. Uh, and so you had a choice in that, um, in that exchange that you made. And you just said you overshared, but I took from your story the idea, and maybe I was misreading what you were trying to get to, but my, the lesson that I think that story holds is that it's, it's actually necessary to reveal aspects of yourself in order to make a connection with someone else in a genuine human way where you can find that common ground that you want to walk together. So did I misread what you were? No, I think I was being I I was being a bit flippant about the whole scenario, and yet I think you're you're totally right, and I think it's a mm. a true leadership lesson, and you know, yeah. in your work, I'm sure you've seen it, and I know in mine, as I've grown as a leader, this idea of how and when you're vulnerable, and the way to be. Um, those moments of being personable with the people you lead, the people you're with, um, are truly the moments when you can move people forward together and find not just common ground, but ways, you know, that there's um, middle ground, I think, is it's somewhat different, right? Um, and it's an incredibly important lesson for um, everyone to learn in their leadership journey. Yeah, so that wonderful nugget uh, from your remarkable experience. How does, how does that weave into what you're trying to teach in What Girls Need? Yeah. So I think it goes into the crux of how we raise the next generation. Um, and I think in particular for young women, it's important to hear um, these ideas that uh, and, you know, frankly, that it's it's okay to lean into their their things that are uncomfortable for them and things that um, may come natural, but uh, they may think they're supposed to put aside. Right? For example, this idea of um, being empathetic and being uh, communicating in a really personable, maybe maybe it feels even a feminine way, gendered norm, right? And so we can mm -hmm. put that label aside, but. Um, these are things, you know, even in how we communicate, there's certain ways of communicating that come natural to girls that can be so powerful if we let them embrace it and make it their strength. Like right? you and did in Yemen. Like I did in Yemen. I have to say that one of the advantages I had throughout Yemen and Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan was leaning into some of my um, sort of things that 
my, my personal way of being. You could say it was because I was a woman in these environments, but just sort of how I interacted maybe differently than some of my male colleagues. Um, I, I certainly think it helped both my research and, and my ability to navigate that world. And I do think it's a, um, an advantage that our girls will have when they grow up, if they think of these moments, how they collaborate, how they um, empathize, how they adapt. These are things that we can teach them uh, to be strengths in whatever direction they head, you know, not, in, not overseas, but in a business world as entrepreneurs, you know, and on the home front too. Mm-hmm. So let, let me just remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. My guest today is Dr. Marissa Porges, who is the author of the brand new book, What Girls Need. How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women, which is what she's in the business of doing as the head of school at the Baldwin School outside of Philadelphia. So how do you, how do you teach that to girls in elementary school and in high school? Uh, what's, what's the essence of, of uh, what, you're, what you're trying to get at in what girls need that, that parents anywhere can use? I think it's... Uh... I think first and foremost, it's about identifying some core skills that we want them to have when they're older mm-hmm. um, and then helping them practice. And it's never too early to practice, right? We think, oh, you know, can they practice negotiating when they're 10? Well, you know, maybe it doesn't feel like negotiating, but it's about asking. It's about practicing raising their voice and self-advocating. You can do that from six years old if, you know, if you find like realistic little ways, right? There's, you know, one, one story that I learned from my students is how their, their parents taught them to self-advocate. One of my girls um, at school by having her, not her brother, it was always her who had to call to place an order for pizza when she was in elementary school. And she credits that later on for being why she felt more and more comfortable over the years, even though she was an introvert with being, um, you know, outreach to teachers um, when she had a trouble in a class or needed help because her, you know, her father in particular in this instance would sort of put her say, no, you have to do it yourself. I'm not going to step in for you. Which can be difficult. Calling the the order pizza if you're a little kid and you don't like, you know, putting demands on people or you're not sure if you're going to be challenged or questioned. That's, that could have been pretty high pressure, but I guess pressure enough that she was able to learn something important. So a loving parent that uh, pushed her, but not too far, helped her to see that, yeah, you're, we're going to expect you to express your voice, even though it might be a little uncomfortable. Right. And of course, you know, it, it, it sounds, we take it for granted that it's easy to do, but you're right for a young, uh, young child, especially some girls who aren't used to being put in those positions. Um, it can feel uncomfortable, but it's a totally safe thing to do. We, we set it up in a way that, mm-hmm. right, you're there right with them. You can coach them through it. But this particular student, you know, later on when she was uh, later in high school, she was sexually harassed on a coll- on a campus um, and had the wherewithal to immediately speak up, report it, um, and, and immediately get the attention and support she needed. And she credits, again, these early moments with the practice. So I do think mm-hmm. it's, again, identifying skills and then finding small moments and ways that we can help our girls practice, whether it's speaking up, whether it's negotiating, whether it's adapting. Um, you know, that's another one that we can find you know, everyday ways. It doesn't have to be big things, just small things can really make a difference in this regard. So can you give us an example, perhaps one from the book that helps us to understand what, what a parent can do for a, a young girl? Well, at any age, your kids mm-hmm. are at school or from what, five to 18? 
Yep, four um, years old all the way to college. So right. throughout. So what's uh, what's what's an instance of how you can help to teach adaptability uh, that that uh, any parent could use? Yeah, I mean, this is again one that has uh, adaptability has become so important. I mean, look at us right now, right? That's, yeah. We're all leaning into it, and we don't realize it's a skill that you can cultivate, you can nurture, you can teach, um, and there's little little ways we can do it. We think when the kids come back to school, we want them to be in uh, the the class with their friends, on the bus with their friends, go to you know the same summer program or after school program or whatever it is, get picked up by someone they know. These little moments that can be safe, but also can be ways to push them to take risk and try new things. One of the cornerstones of adaptability is being able to relate to different people at different moments in different mm-hmm. ways. It's something as adults we get used to when we switch jobs, have new teams at work, um, have to collaborate. I'm still not used to it. I, well, there you go, Stu. So we'll work on it with you, Stu. But perhaps, right? If you I'm know, a hopeless instead case. Of, there you go. But when we're when we're young, instead of you know requesting that favorite teacher or the class with her friends, um, maybe that's the moment you say no. You know what? We're going to try something new. Push her to try something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think adaptability is not about difficult moments. About it's about navigating change, um, helping them learn to realize change can be good. Um, and I think, you know, it, again, it's, it's little small ways we can lean into that, that will help our girls, particularly now, right? Everywhere around them, they're looking, it's change. Um, and it's a, it can be tough for adults. So certainly tough for kids too. So can you say more about what you're doing right now to uh, use this um, terribly disruptive time uh, to help your students and their families to to be learning as well as you know to to thrive or at, at least to to work through uh, the tumult of these of these pandemic times. Um, are there ways that you're able, on top of just trying to get it all you know to work, uh, to to step back and to to use this this occasion, this episode in our history? As, as a means for for teaching yeah some of the important lessons that you're that you're writing about and what girls need it's an incredibly important thing to remember because this is it's going to be a challenge no matter what and it's going to it's not going to be perfect right no no matter what direction we head right now we have a full plan in place to reopen in a couple of weeks um, in person but we know that particularly in the local area the um, you know trans community transmission is on the rise and so there's concerns that that we you know what that looks like when we bring kids and teachers and families back to our campus mm-hmm. um, and so I think it's about leaning into um, in particular, alongside these operational plans that include hand washing and mask wearing and social distancing and outdoor classrooms and all this stuff, um, leaning into how we teach empathy, right? It's it's an interesting part of it, right? It's how we're teaching our girls to be compassionate with each other and with their teachers and with, you know, the families around us. I think it's part of, um, you know, how we help lean into not just the pandemic but um, the movement that's afoot more broadly um, in, you know, in the world uh, elsewhere, and and just really help our girls take understand how to take different perspectives, um, and then what they do about that, what they do with that information, particularly at young ages. Right, this is where it's it's hard to. You need to help kids um, in elementary school see their place, not just within their families and themselves, but within their communities. And when they get older, you can place them within their communities more broadly, lo- you know, locally and nationally. In, in our school, that m- amounted to this spring when we returned 
to virtual learning, you know, for those in Philadelphia, but like a lot of places around the country, we were virtual from everything from mid-March on all school. Um, the, the remainder of school was uh, online. Um, but when we returned after spring break, we had a full day about compassion. And we keyed, we teed up the girls by doing a compassion project together. They got together in small groups and we asked them, what do you do to support each other? Right. And then for the older girls, it was not just about supporting each other. It was about supporting their community and they could come up with anything. And I think mm -hmm. especially kids these days, they lean into video and online stuff and they started producing video montages of ideas for how they're going to support the community. And we had this one thing really fabulous one that we ended up showing to all the families because it was the girls, you know, dancing to music across the grades and cheering each other on in different ways from their living rooms or from their, you know, front mm -hmm. lawns or whatever that looked like. But it was about how you support each other by understanding where the other is coming from, right? Some mm. people who, you know, have different supports at home or, or have different access to technology or have different things they need, but you can do small things. You can write each other notes. You can check in with each other on social media. You can go easy on somebody and give them a break in a different way. You can mm -hmm. social distance, right? That was one of the messages. You can social distance. You can wear a mask. I mean, these are things that the girls themselves were like, yeah, no, this is what we have to do. Mm -hmm. Compassion. And so you made a point other. of teaching compassion by asking, challenging the the students to to come up with a way that they could express it. Uh, and I expect you'll be continuing to do that. And one of the ways that it seems you have uh, uh, a particular opportunity, I said at the top that you, you know, you, you're in a, a, a unique role, especially with your background to, to really have an effect on so many people's lives. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, classic impression of a place like the Baldwin School is that it's all white and rich. Uh, and highly exclusive. Uh, please tell listeners how today's Baldwin School actually looks in terms of its yeah. demography according to uh, race and socioeconomic status. Yeah, thank you, Stu. It's, uh, we're incredibly diverse. It's a, these are different schools than they once were, you know, decades and or generations ago. Um, and, you know, today we are so incredibly proud. We pull from um, 62 zip codes, uh, the entire tri-state area, self-reported, um, above 40% diversity, persons of color, but self-reported is, you know, sort of statistically a little bit off. So we say about half our population are, are, are persons of color from the student body. Um, you know, we are fortunate to be able to support a third of our families on financial need and a lot of people stretching to be there. Um, we, uh, we are, I guess if you're going to use your word exclusive, we have high academic standards. So we are a school where people, the girls are stretching themselves intellectually, but where we um, want to make sure mm -hmm. we, ha we pull from an incredibly diverse socioeconomic, racial, religious, um, and geographic uh, backgrounds to, because that's the way the girls learn best. Um, and we want to make sure we have the, the brightest girls there and those are going to be the leaders of the, of the future in our minds. So I'm curious, and I'm sure listeners are too, as to how you then leverage that diversity in the student body to teach about the issues of the day that are on so many people's minds with respect to understanding, you know, the, the, the background and experiences of people who are different and, you know, for whom you might not have grown up learning to really understand and have empathy for um, on all sides of the equation. What kinds of things are you thinking about or doing to help on that score that, that, Listeners would want to know about perhaps for their own schools, their own kids, if they're yeah. not so fortunate as to be able to send them to Baldwin. 
Well, I think we try to do it at different levels. And I think a lot of schools are thinking about it in this way. And we're really, um, I'm really proud of at Baldwin how the faculty, staff, and the students and families have leaned into at multiple levels. One, making sure we diversify um, what we're talking about, what we're reading, um, what the curriculum looks like uh, to make sure our girls um, and our families can see themselves and each other in what we're doing, what we're teaching. Particularly for us, we also try to do it through the lens of making sure girls see themselves. Girls are front and center. They're learning about female mathematicians they're learning about female engineers, female computer scientists, females in history, right? And also about those from different backgrounds, right? So part of their perspectives is actually they've done research that shows it's not just in nonfiction, but also fiction books. Um, mm -hmm. Reading fiction, reading fiction and, and uh, characters who um, are different than yourselves um, with some moment in common. Uh, you know, for us, it's uh, making stories with the girl protagonists, but with different backgrounds. Those stories help you see different perspectives, help you put yourself in someone else's shoes and then empathize with them over time understand what it means to have different experiences all right and then so the second part okay go ahead well, i was going to ask you um you know thinking again about listeners who might have a, a fifth grader at home and you know she's not getting enough of a variety of perspectives on the human experience uh, do you have some recommendations off the top of your head or a place where you would send people to learn more about you know ways to expand the consciousness of your girls you know one or two favorites of yours yeah, 100%. Um, I, I, we have actually a full list on my website, uh, whatgirlsneed.com. And then there's a okay. section that has a list of books that for different ages that you can read to build empathetic skills and perspective taking in your girls. Um, uh, and also, I mean, you know, there, there are some, you know, easy ones that come up. There's some ones that have that push your thinking a little bit more. Um, one of our, our, my students actually remembers she was graduating college and going off and she remembers reading Esperanza Rising in fifth grade. And when asked, it's why she thinks when she was in upper school, she was so good at empathizing with others. And she can mm -hmm. remember this book she read when she was 10. Um, yeah. But there's a, a whole list of them on my website. Cool. Um, let's, let's cut there. We, we have to take a short break. Sure. Uh, so don't go away, folks. When we come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with Dr. Marissa Porges about her wonderful new book, What Girls Need. I am Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. So glad you're here. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. And my guest today is Dr. Marissa Porges. She's the author of the brand new book. It's called What Girls Need. And she knows a lot about that. Uh, it's called What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. How does she know? Well, she not only served in the Obama White House and is a former fighter pilot who has uh, done a lot of leadership in the military and in counterterrorism efforts. She's also the head of school at Baldwin, which is an all-girls school here outside of Philadelphia that she attended herself when she was growing up. So we're we're talking about what girls need. Um, I wonder if we could uh, loop back to the beginning of your wonderful book, which really hooks the reader with these compelling episodes of when you had to deal with some very difficult situations because of your being a woman in a situation where, um, you know, that was a liability. Um, and, you know, as I read through that, I kept thinking, hmm, wow, 
this is this is this is terrible. We we need to do more for our girls to prepare them to deal with these situations. What did you do? Or more importantly, I think here is the question that might challenge you, and that is like, what didn't you get growing up? I mean, you got so much from your education, your 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 social environment, and your family. It's clear you had a lot of support. Uh, I'm, I'm inferring from, you know, how your life has unfolded from what we learn about it in the book, but you know, it wasn't perfect. So what, in terms of what you're trying to do, the mark you're going to leave as your legacy at Baldwin, what do, what do you hope to bring to the curriculum, to the learning experience, to the cultural environment that wasn't there that, um, you kind of wished was when you were growing up? Yeah. So, uh, you know, on one hand, from the curriculum perspective, you know, I, we have the good fortune of having amazing teachers and educators who have just taken, you know, what's going on in the classroom to new levels. So, you know, and I leave that to the experts, even as I am excited to see as more, more and more weave in um, conversations about uh, how to be imperfect, how to fail, and how to ask for help. Right. And I think this is, I mean, the, you know, part of the book talks about, you know, asking um, part of the book talks about resilience and, and, you know, being comfortable with failure, but at the crux of it, it's all these combined. And I think that's really where um, women need both, you know, can be both most courageous over time and be most bold. Um, and it's something particularly for young women, we need to teach them that it's okay to do these things, that it's okay to, to ask and you need to practice asking. It's okay yeah. to fail and you need to practice failing and then it's okay to ask for help and you need to practice that too. So you've got a chapter devoted to uh, turn her voice into an influential ask. What, what's the essence of what you're teaching in, in that, that important part of the book? Oh my goodness. Well, so there you go right to the crux of uh, negotiating negotiations being something that statistics say uh, by and large women do not uh, do as often or do as well as men. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, the start of salary gaps. I mean, there's other systemic reasons for it as well, but whether it's salary gaps or, you know, titles or pr uh, projects that we want our, our girls to, to be able to get and go for when they're older, um, but it starts young. It starts, you know, in having them practice speaking up. We talked about that earlier with these moments we can give our youngest girls. Um, but over time, we need to make sure that they ask for what they need and, and hopefully help get it in a way that feels comfortable. Oftentimes by working together in groups, by collaborating, by, you know, this is where, you know, I'm sure you've done the studies on negotiating and how what, um, uh, instead of positional negotiating, intent, I mean, there's all these re research on different ways you negotiate with somebody to see the other side and that perspective taking mm -hmm. we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, for me, it, it goes back to, you know, these moments when I myself realized I wasn't using my voice to get what I need. Right. There's a there's one core story. My, uh, you know, one of the pivotal moments in my career when I was sitting uh, at a table with the president of the United States in the West Wing um, and the cat got my tongue. Right. Suddenly I realized I wasn't actually speaking up and I was horrified to leave the room an hour later and realize we'd been talking about national security and I didn't say a word. Hey. I know, right? Uh, that is, you know, and yet I've had the good fortune of, of having some one-on-one -on -one time with President Obama later. I made up for it, but that was wow. this moment when I What did you chat about then? Uh, we talked about, yeah, this is the, I, I literally had that, you know, stuck in the elevator with the president of the United States. What would you do? Yes. Um, so uh, he asked what I would do to, um, to combat ISIS. And uh, we walked from uh, the back room of a speech that I'd written for him to his waiting beast, the limousine. Um, and I gave him a three-point plan for combating ISIS uh, and then asked for a job. So, 
you know, well, well we, we're still waiting on the second answer, but, um, but it was, oh. it was a, it was a moment where I had, you know, recovered from the early Wait, so you're leaving the Baldwin school to go back to government <laughs> service. Is that what you just said, Marissa? Well, that that would be a new story to everyone. We have a big job ahead of us. I think that no one is leaving. Uh, I have a good fortune of, uh, you know, being with this school because it's an important time to be there now. So no job yes. awaiting right now. But All right, I was just following up on what you said to Obama. Thank you. Right? Yes, exactly. So you did have another chance, but you, you held back. You, you froze in that moment or you just didn't take the opportunity. So you're teaching you're teaching girls to make that influential ask. And what, what is it that makes it hard for them that you're that you that they need to be educated about overcoming? I think there's, you know, social norms at play a lot of times that um, don't empower young women to speak up as often as young men. Um, there's research that shows in a co-ed school environment from a young age, um, girls, uh, rather boys speak up and speak out three times more often than young girls in an elementary environment. Um, and then you take that same young woman and you put her in a single sex classroom or playground or play environment and she will speak out just as often as her male peer did in that co-ed setting. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's something that happens and we, it's reinforced over time. And I think the more and more that parents, teachers, adults with young women in their lives help teach our girls the power of their voice, reinforce how important it is. It's around the dinner table that when you're having a conversation mm -hmm. about what movie to choose or what you see in the newspaper, you make sure your daughter is speaking up too, that you pause the conversation and say, hey, you know, this is her chance as well. And that reinforces in small ways um, the value of her voice so that later when she is, you know, whether it's the West Wing or, in, you know, at a tech table or in, you know, at, at our community, you know, I don't know, whatever it is, a PTA or a political environment, whatever it may be, in college classrooms. They've done research that shows that women mm -hmm. in college classes speak out less than men. And we need to work yes. on that with them from a young age. So. So, so that is an important part of your leadership agenda at Baldwin is to help girls to be more confident in coming forward with what it is that's on their minds. And, and especially, it seems you were saying to be asking for things. Yes. Asking for things and then finding ways to ask, um, to ways to get help in the ask, right? And I think this is part of it as well, that to realize that they're not, um, it's not a, a singular function that they have to navigate on their own, right? Mm -hmm. Asking for help, for example, right? This is, it's a, it's, this is moving away from that just pure negotiating as a unilateral uh, effort and really figuring out, you know, it's about asking for help from others. And I think um, it's something that, you know, in talking about being confident and resilient, I think a lot of young women think they have to do it on their own. And yeah. I know I, it took me a while to get to that as well. And this is where learning from my own moments of failure, my own moments where I um, needed help, I didn't realize I needed until after the fact. Um, and that's something that I, I think we, I'm bringing to our Baldwin community, but bringing girls to girls more and more um, will help. Let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. So glad you're with us today. I'm speaking with Dr. Marissa Porges, who's the author of What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. Um, now, lots of people listening here are working parents. Some of them are working mothers, just like you, Marissa. So um, how are you dealing with that relatively new role, if I have, it, if I have the chronology correct in your life? Yes, um, I... Uh... 
there was two babies born last year. One was the book and one was my, my first, um, a little boy. Um, and uh, my, uh, my publisher had the good fortune of receiving a chapter from labor and delivery. So there was that moment for everyone. Um, uh, but, get out of here. Uh, no, well, I had to get it done. I'm a de deadline driven person. And Hang that was the biggest deadline of them all. Which was? That I was trying to get the manuscript done in advance of the baby's arrival because uh, I, you know, fundamentally knew it'd be hard to juggle that. And uh, so, hang on, you're newborn. in, you're in labor, and you're writing. Stop it. I well, you know, things. Yes, no, in fact, I, I was. don't know. I, I I I witnessed uh, three children and, and being born. I, and I know I, that is where I maybe am not the best role model for my girls, and so I will fully admit that I did bring my my laptop to labor delivery and was able to get uh, an op ed and a chapter finished. Um, uh, right. I had the good fortune of being, get out. Well, that, but it was a long, it was an extended labor period, and okay. so there was um, there was that. And good All right, pain so it's not like you were you know, seven centimeters dilated and ready to, ready to, ready no. to run. No, 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 please. No, I'm not that. I'm not that bad. Okay. But, um, but, uh, anyway. In between squeezing, you're just, you're like, oh, okay, now we're paragraphs. going, now we're going off the, off the track. All here, right, I'll yeah. stop. I'm just trying to get the mise-en-scene. I'm trying to understand labor and delivery, your writing. I'm just trying to understand that. Now I have a better understanding. I'll stop talking about it. So, so yes, you now have a son and a book. How and your and and a huge executive role with a complex set of stakeholders, many different kinds of people who uh, demand your attention and your leadership. What's what's been the key for your thriving in this uh, new set of roles? The key is having a lot of people there to help, right? And that goes back to this, mm -hmm. you know, making sure our girls realize they shouldn't do it alone. I have the good fortune of having um, a partner who, you know, is fully committed to you know, taking a big role in our baby's life. And he, you know, we, we juggle not always very effectively. Sometimes I will say that during meetings, we each joke that um, uh, during the Skype sessions, uh, the baby's eating envelopes on the ground because apparently we've left him for too long amidst our paperwork. Um, I shouldn't, I shouldn't admit that paper, maybe bad parent 101, but um, you know, I have. Uh, no, it's um, useful to be revealing and vulnerable because it helps other people realize, oh, she may seem perfect, but she's actually not. And so that's by doing that, by admitting to your child eating paper, paper, Marissa. Okay. No, right. But you know, that's, that's we, horrible. How could you that, do that? Totally. Good, I mean, he's not going to die from that. And people listening to that story will realize, oh, she's a person just like me who makes mistakes and is still trying to do the right thing. And we, we can't be perfect, right? No. Nope. I think it's an important lesson. So, yes, you have the support of your husband and some and flexibility. A, and, a, and a team of people who uh, have been able to step in, right? And I, I early on sort of, you know, it's it's friends, it's members of, of my school community, um, it's family and local area people who in that moment when, you know, I needed someone to step in and... Yeah. You know, for example, while there was a, you know, a podcast being taped in her interview, come and bounce the baby on, on mm -hmm. their knee and make sure that, you know, uh, again, I think there is days uh, early on, I realized that there's days, particularly when they're young, that um, if there are five fingers and five toes or 10, I suppose, 10 fingers and 10 toes by the end of the day, that's really the right number, um, then we've all succeeded. Um, and that's okay. Uh, and so it's, it's about remembering that. And again, this goes back to that ask. It's asking for help. Um, and so one thing, you know, I think it's really 
um, asking for help from your partner now more than ever, working women at home, working mothers, between homeschooling and increased domestic labor and juggling careers with the pandemic, you know, we all have to be able to make allowances for, you know, B pluses sometimes work when A's won't, you know, it's not possible sure. to be an A or even lower than that, right? You know, there's that, um, but, and then asking and demanding, you know, what we need to make it happen. Have, have you enacted your role this coming year as you're thinking about, you know, what you're doing this year and your goals? Has that shifted in terms of, you know, you're adjusting downward your expectations or setting them for other people in terms of what you're able to do? as a result of, uh, you know, the challenges that the pandemic poses? In terms of what I expect of the, the school and the people and- I'm sorry, sorry. I, I wasn't clear. I meant of what they can expect of you. Oh, um, you know, I, I think the reality is I take my job incredibly seriously because as the leader of a large organization that um, at the center of it, I have, um, you know, families and kids and teachers whom I want to take care of, uh, care for. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, I allow myself the times off and I try to block time, but I'm, it's, it's a moment where uh, we've, we've made jokes in my, uh, that I'll take July 2021 off um, because we really need to make sure we get each other through the next year. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's very rare that you're facing a global pandemic, a, um, you know, a moment of uh, incredible um, you know, a social justice movement and economic downturn um, all at once. And, you know, having both the privilege and the challenge of supporting families and teachers and, and young kids through it. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's not an easy one, but I don't know. I eat more ice cream right now. Is there, there's that? Eat, eat more ice cream? Is that an okay answer? That, that works for me. Um, I, I don't know if it works for everyone, but on, on a more serious note in terms of, you know, how we adjust and, and also allow ourselves the freedom to err, you know, to make mistakes. What have you found to be effective means for teaching girls just that? And, and what, in, what girls need do you offer to help parents and teachers and others who care about raising strong, resilient women uh, learn about um, failure and how to, how to learn from it and grow from it? Yeah, I think that this is where stories are the most important thing. And you and I have talked about this already in terms of how sharing personal stories um, has such a big impact on your listeners, but our kids in particular, they, they sop it up. Those are the things they remember. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's telling stories of um, moments that didn't go so well. I um, mean, it can be small yeah. moments. You know, one of the, the, the tricks in the book is um, having regular highs and lows or, or um, mm. uh, you know, thorns what? and roses in your day when you tell your kids something that happened good that day and something that didn't, right? These little moments. Mm. They can be just these moments where, you know, we made it to the, it sounds like a silly one. We made it to the supermarket and once again, forgot, you know, our mask, forgot the, the, the bag that we, you know, um, our reusable bag, forgot something that we needed and had to go back again, didn't buy what we needed. That's like a silly one, right? But for me, it's sharing some of the bigger ones with the girls as well. Um, you know, in, in my own career, it was when I decided to transition out of flying for the Navy. Um, and that was a conscious decision, but it was a hard one because it was fraught with a lot of personal and professional failure for me. Um, I couldn't fly anymore. I came to that realization, um, but it wasn't an easy moment because suddenly a, a childhood dream um, was something I, I had to give up on, it felt like. Um, and sharing that story and, and, and the, uh, the reality of what it meant for me in my career and in terms of a moment of 
what felt like failure, um, I mm-hmm. think is something in terms that I've shared with the girls, but that's yeah. again, a macro example, but there's so daily little ones. What too. do they ask about? Well, it's a, it's a big one because it was pivotal in your life. It's not the same as forgetting to bring your recycle bag to the Acme. That's a, perhaps um, a little one. I, yeah, we can come up with a better one on that. Both, no, they're both useful, I think, as illustrative of the kinds of things that it's useful to talk about with kids. So what do, what do your girls ask you about when you tell them about that moment in your own history what what are they what are they interested in what do they want to find out more about the what you do next right and this is where it's that the 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 mess up at the supermarket whatever it is um or a major mess up in your career or personal or or professional life it's what happened next right so it's a did you get upset did you get emotional did you like curse and create a storm did you get angry and how you handled that emotion but also then how uh you know i say how operationally, and this is the, you know, the military side of me, how do you operationally get through it? Um, and so I talk about that. I talk about how it was incredibly emotionally difficult. It was a moment where, you know, I leaned into my both love of Ben and Jerry's and girlfriends who I called and said, you know, I want to talk this through. And for a while, that was, you know, the two ways I sort of navigated it emotionally. But then I think it's really important to also talk you know, again, operationally. So to take care of yourself, let me just jump Mm -hmm. in here to underscore what I take from your, that first part of the story, which is that you, you, you didn't hold on to these frustrations and sense of perhaps doubt. I don't know. You didn't say that, but I'm guessing, uh, you, you talked to other people, you had other people who were able to listen to your story and to provide some kind of comfort as perhaps that Ben and Jerry's did as well. So um, what else, what else do they learn from you were telling that story? What else do they want to know about? Well, I think this is, and then I think it's about after the self-care element, it's about what behavioral elements help you get through it. And this is where I tell the girls, sometimes you just need to take the next step and the next step after that and build a plan. And for me, that was always part of the story. Um, And so the plan was, you know, figuring out the next job, figuring out the next move, whatever that looked like. Um, And particularly for, you know, students these days, you know, every high schooler when they're thinking about getting into college, um, every kid when they're thinking about getting on a sports team, there's going to be moments when they may feel like, you know, they've been hit by major failure because they didn't it wasn't the outcome they wanted in any, either of these instances. Mm-hmm. And so part of it is that self-care emotionally, but then it's like, well, what do you do next? Right. How do you game plan? And for, mm-hmm. this is actually something that I think for girls is super helpful to think about in terms of becoming competitive. Right. And I dug into, for me, I dug into my competitive spirit and said, I want to conquer the next mountain, whatever that was, would be for me. It was competitive with myself on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it helped me create a plan. And so, you know, we talked, I talked to the girls about what that looked like for me. Um, so that they can then help develop a plan that suits, you know, when they meet a moment of failure or what that feels like, that they can then behaviorally, you know, take the next step and emotionally take care of themselves. And you address some of that in the the chapter on her ability to adapt will be key. Is that right? Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, because for me, it was about pivoting multiple times in different careers, as we've talked about already. Um, and, And, you know, resilience is part of that and adapting is, is a key function of moving forward. So what would you say uh, to readers, uh, to potential readers about what they can gain from reading what girls need as we come to close here? What's what's the the big ideas that you want to make sure people know about? 
Yeah, I think it's um, that we want to give our girls earlier on the skills they need to thrive later and that little things we do from a young age can make an incredible difference. I think any adult woman out there has had moments where she's doubted herself um, and where we wish, I mean, I know I have where I wish I had a little, you know, better, I was better at negotiating, was better at speaking up, was better at dealing with failure, all these small things that I think we can help our girls practice in little ways. It's not about being, you know, fundamentally overhauling how we parent or how we teach, but just taking small steps to teach our girls these things early on will make a big difference. Now too, right? As we're navigating the pandemic, it's things they need right now as well. And why does all this matter? Which is where you conclude and where we're going to conclude. Why? Taking another cut at that. Why is this so important now? Yeah, I mean, I think we've, you know, we started our conversation on this note, Stu, that I think now more than ever, we really need to look to the next generation to um, be the future leaders, to bridge gaps, to figure out a way that we see each other's perspectives and have a more equitable path forward. Um, and it's, you know, more important than ever that we bring our young girls into that conversation and that they, um, they take a leadership role in it. And the more skills we give them early on, the better off they'll be. And so it's the, yeah. I was going to ask, you know, you, you emphasize competitive sports, but there are also many girls who are just not good athletes who don't want to play sports and who would instead rather, you know, do art or, you know, something, you know, that's non directly competitive in the same way. Um, what in just, you know, 30 seconds here, can you say about, you know, how people with those kinds of talents and interests can learn some of those same aspects of adaptability uh, and competition? Yeah. So what I'll challenge us on thinking that um, that you have to be a good athlete to be competitive on the sports field. One right. of my favorite stories is a girl who her her passion is performing arts. Um, she is that is her thing. And she can tell you how her parents, you know, stuck with her and, and you know, really want her to be um, have a sport to play just like her brother. And she will tell you that it became volleyball and that she loves the fact that she's not going to be an Olympic athlete. She's going to be a singer and performer, but that she can hold her own on the volleyball court. It took many years to do so, but she gained mm -hmm. self-aware, self-confidence from it. Um, and yet there's also other moments as well. We can have our girls um, compete by putting their poetry in a library contest or by, you know, submitting art to an art contest or just, you know, doing trivia, spelling bee, geography bee. Um, and our girls, you know, I can see our girls at school, they love it. They get to show their best self. It's not about beating someone else. It's about be, being their best self in that moment. And it's an incredibly important skill um, to have later on in life. So uh, I, would, uh, I would, would push every parent to, to think of it for their girls. Now, uh, we, we just have literally a minute and I'm, you may not be able to address this in that amount of time, but we, if it were up to you, would you have all kids in single sex schools as my wife and I both went to single sex uh, high schools, public high schools in New York City, and we benefited from it a million years ago. Is that what you would like to see? I think all girls um, deserve uh, time in a single sex environment. I think it's incredibly important um, when they're young, uh, whether it's at a summer camp or a school, not everyone has the opportunity in their local area to have a single sex school for pre-K through 12, but to have a few years, have a time which is protected space just for them to learn their voice, to find their confidence, and to know that they can lean into their best self, I think is incredibly important for young women. All right, Marissa, we have to wrap it up here. Uh, folks, to learn more um, about what Marissa Porges is bringing to the world, you can get now, I think it's available now, What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. Marissa, thanks so much for being my guest. How, how can people find out more about what you're doing? 
Thank you. The, my website, Marissa Porges, P-O-R-G-E-S.com, um, has uh, links to the book as well as resources for parents and educators about all the things we're talking about, including book lists and readings for kids of all ages, but also adults as well to help push these ideas forward for Great. all our young women. Thanks so much, Marissa. Thank you for having me, Stu. All right. And thanks for joining us. Don't forget to tune in next time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Thursdays. You can write to me, freeman.wharton.upenn.edu. If you have a question, and check out totalleadership.org for free podcast versions of this show sometime down the road, about a week and a half after, after it airs, and all kinds of other resources available to you there for free. Thanks, Patty Hall, for producing and taping our show. And our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. I am Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. To E Street Radio, your home away from home. Great to be here. E Street Radio, Sirius XM Channel 20.